All right, everyone, good evening. Tonight we begin in chapter 9 of Isaiah. We are finishing off the section of Isaiah um, that has often been called the Book of Emmanuel. And it's because of this promise uh, that's given in chapter 7 of the uh, virgin who shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And then we saw um, that because of this one who would to come, the one whose name means God with us, that God promised to preserve Judah until that had happened. Um, although in chapters 9 through 12, the name Emmanuel doesn't occur, more information about this child who is to come does. Uh, and at the end of chapter 12, we hit the first significant, uh, significant break in the text. And in chapter 13, we'll start with something new. Um, notice what it says here in chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Chapter 9 there begins with the word but, the contrastive conjunction which should force us as readers to go back and remember what we've just read. And so here's what's going on in chapter 8. Isaiah is uh, calling for Jacob, the, uh, the tribes of Judah in particular, the southern tribes of Israel, to trust God steadfastly and to learn from their sister, the northern tribes of Israel's mistakes. And so he's laying out the fate that is to come on Israel, and because they have chosen darkness in their counsel, so darkness is what will come. So notice what it says at the tail end of chapter 8, verse 21. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God, and turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But, chapter 9, verse 1 says, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. Now, these are the two northernmost tribes in Israel. Along with Manasseh, they make up most of the territory of northern Israel, the one that uh, Isaiah has just promised is going to go into times of gloom. And now he looks beyond that and he says, it's not going to stay, in that, way, stay that way. In fact, those who have dealt with this great period of gloom are actually going to enjoy a great honor. Notice what it says here. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, okay? And so he looks forward to a time where the dark land will become the bright land. And notice here it pushes up uh, the land of Zebulon and Naphtali is also identified here as being the land beyond the Jordan River. If you're in Israel, the Jordan River runs from the Sea of Galilee and it terminates in the Dead Sea. Uh, and so here, north of the Jordan River is the land of the Sea of Galilee. Now, as Galilee is named there, it's probably got you thinking forward to the ministry of Jesus. In fact, the verses we're reading right here are quoted in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus begins his ministry. And Matthew says, this, uh, Jesus began to work 
his ministry and preach his gospel in the land of the Sea of Galilee so that it would fulfill the words of Isaiah, and it quotes this passage, okay? Um, and so, notice how it goes on. It says in verse 26, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has shined, or light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So it looks forward to this time when light will dawn around the Sea of Galilee and sees it as a time of joy um, comparable to the joy of harvest and then comparable in verse 4 to the joy of victory. It says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. And so although God's going to bring Israel, the northern tribes, into oppression, he's eventually going to break the yoke of that oppression, um, bring people back in to settle the land, and then uh, there's going to be this light. Uh, in fact, notice it says the victory will be as on the day of Midian. Now, the victory of Midian is the, the story in Judges, that involves Gideon, Gideon, Midian. They go together, okay? Um, this is not just a chosen at random victory because Israel's history is full of places where God intervenes and delivers them from their enemies. This is a particularly uh, appropriate comparison. And I say that for a couple of reasons. First off, this battle against the Midianites that's led by Gideon, the judge, in Judges 6 and 7, um, I want you to notice where this victory plays out. Judges chapter 6, verse 35 says, And he sent messengers through all of Manasseh, and they were too called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, to Zebulon, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. The victory that Gideon leads against the Midianites is in the land around the Sea of Galilee, in the northernmost parts of Israel. Not only that, but God promises back in Isaiah that he is going to be the one who breaks the rod of the oppressor, that he's going to be the one to do the work. And remember what happens uh, when Gideon garners an army. He sends into all of these tribes, and all he's able to gather uh, in total uh, is 22,000 uh, 22, men. Is that right? Hold on. Um, Anyways, God pairs them down until there's only 300 left. But here's the reasoning God uses in verse 2 of chapter 7. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 people returned and 10,000 remained. And then God ends up reducing it down to 3,000 and then finally to 300. But what's God's agenda? He wants them to know that he is the victor, that he is the deliverer. And so as in the days of Midian, what's going to happen in the land of the Sea of Galilee is going to be God's victory and only God's victory. And then lastly, what happens uh, in, uh, in this battle with the Midianites is under the direction of God, Gideon takes these 300 men and he gives everybody a torch and a vase. And they surround the Midianites in the middle of the camp and then they break their torches, or excuse me, they break their vases so the to torches are exposed. So suddenly there's light 
all around the Midianites, and then they blow their trumpets for Gideon and for the Lord, uh, and that causes total psychological chaos, and they win the battle. In the same way, Isaiah says that this is going to be a victory brought about by light in the darkness, okay? So, here, notice the conclusion, verse 5, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The emphasis in that closing line is that the victory won't just be a victory in this battle, but the victory over all battles. Um, the way that Isaiah puts it in another place is he says, um, on that day, the people shall study war no more. It's, it's the war to end all wars, but not in the pessimistic way we talk about it on the news where there's no one left to fight. Okay? It's, a, it's a victory, it's a routing that is so complete, there is no more opposition, only peace. Now more of this will follow, but notice where this is going to come from. Uh, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Notice that little word for there. Do you understand the logical connection between the conclusions of verses 1 through 5 and the uh, the cause as it's listed in verse 6? How is it that they're going to have their oppressor's yoke broken? How is it that war will come to an end? It says the provision will be through a child who is born and through a son who is given. Now, like in the Psalms, in the prophets we find often uh, Hebrew poetry. And Hebrew poetry functions different than most English poetry. Generally, when we think of poetry uh, in the English mindset, there's one point of comparison that all poetry has in common, doesn't matter the language, which is imagery, right? Poetry is image-driven. It's metaphorical, it's picture, it paints a picture. Whereas prose is a little bit more literal, a little bit more wooden, but also often when we think of English poetry, we think of the rhyme. Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme. There are occasions in Hebrew poetry, in Hebrew literature, in fact, where they will use alliteration and cadence and things like that, but not rhyming. But Hebrew poetry does function, like some English poetry, uh, around a couplet, around a two-line set. We call the Hebrew poetry two-line couplet parallelism. And it's not a parallel of the sounds at the end of the sentence, like rhyming in English. It's a parallel of the sentences themselves. So, for example, read again verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Do you see how those lines run parallel? They don't really convey new information. They, they put the same thing in a different way. And it will blow your mind, if you've never done it, to open up to any psalm and see that, for the most part, the psalms function on couplets, and every once in a while they throw in a triplet for a curveball. But parallelism is the primary way that Hebrew poetry is made. Okay? Generally, that means if you're teaching through a psalm, or if you're reading it, or if you're meditating on it, you want to handle it in pairs, because you're not getting any new information, just a new angle. There are some exceptions to that that when we get to the psalms we'll talk about. Um, but here it is interesting, isn't it, um, that uh, the first line, a child is born, is pretty common sense, but a son is given is a little bit different than a child being born. You know, we may recognize rightly and appropriately that God is the giver of children, um, but here the son who is a gift and a child who is born is 
uh, is juxtaposed. And the reason I'm confident here that it's saying two things and not one thing has to do with what we're going to read in just a second, but what I'm suggesting to you is this one who is to come is both going to be the celebrated and normal everyday occurrence of a child being born. One with a destiny, one with a purpose, one who is a deliverer and a hero, okay? But also, in some way, this one who is to come will be a given son, okay? Think of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, okay? All children are gifts, but one son was given, and this pairing of them together helps us to think about both pieces of this. And then what's so significant about this child who's born, about this son who's given, about Emmanuel, who we've already met, okay? It says, the government shall be upon his shoulder. That means that he will bear the whole weight of the government, not just a government. It's not, uh, it's not that he'll be a leader of a nation, but the leader of all nations. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. And we've already been acquainted with one name for this child to come, Emmanuel. Right? Uh, later, we will encounter his name, the Righteous Branch. That's another name. Here, we're given... Um, these words that follow and they operate as four pairs. So he's given one name, singular, his name shall be called, but then we're given four pairs in the answers. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Okay. Now here's what's interesting. Um, although it is common in Jewish naming to include a reference to the name of God, Think of Elisha, okay, El being the name of God, or Joshua, Yah being the name of God. It's very common for Jewish names to include a reference to God himself, okay? But the way that these ones are laid out, these names don't just include a reference to God, they are divine names. I'll show you what I mean. For example, this first phrase, wonderful counselor. The adjective there for wonderful, Pele in the Hebrew, uh, it shows up throughout the Old Testament, and it's always used of God. Not once does it refer to anyone but God. In fact, you may remember an occasion uh, where, in fact, is it the story of Gideon? If it isn't, it's Samson. Uh, it's Samson, right? Uh, so Samson's mother uh, gets to know this angel. Samson's uh, father asks a question and basically says, what is your name? And he says, why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? Okay. In fact, we can see how this plays out in Isaiah. When we study a book of the Bible, uh, we want to pay attention to the closer references to Hebrew words than the further ones. Okay. We can learn all sorts of things about a word by looking at every occurrence across the Old Testament, but we can learn a lot more about the intention of the author by staying in the book that we're reading. Okay. Um, and so when we do this in Isaiah with this word wonderful, there's two more references that use this word Pele. The first one's in chapter 25, verse 1. It says here in chapter 25, verse 1, O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you, I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Plans formed of old, faithful and sure. God is the one who does Pele things, who does wonderful things. And then chapter 28, verse 29, we encounter an even clearer reference. Listen to this one. 
This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in what? In counsel. What is the title given to this one who is to come, the child who is to born? Wonderful counselor. And so we find these words side by side here, and this refers to the Lord of hosts as the wonderful counselor. Okay. Now, if that one isn't clear enough, look at the next one. Mighty God. Okay. El Elyon. Okay. Do you hear the rep- repetition there of El? Last week we talked about how holy, holy, holy the triple holy is an elevation of that concept in the same way that Jesus said, truly, truly, I say unto you, here in this name, mighty God, the description of God is effectively God-like God, okay? It's a superlative. It's an emphasis by using the same word. Um, in the same way as wonderful counselor, the way that Isaiah deals with the word mighty, you can have a mighty hero that's not divine, Okay? It's the God part of the name that's striking here. The mighty God, El Elyon, the God of all gods, is the name that's used here. But listen to how Isaiah uses it just a few chapters uh, later. In fact, just one chapter later in chapter 10, verse 21. He says, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to who? To the mighty God. Okay. That's the same phrase there, El Elyon. Uh, Not only that, but there's also a New Testament reference that nails down this concept as seeing Jesus in this light. Uh, Listen to what it says in Titus chapter 2. Look here at chapter 2, verse 13. Speaking here of Jesus, in fact, let's go back to verse 11 for context. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. And so here it identifies Jesus as our great God and Savior. Now there are some who suggest, isn't that just pointing out that both God the Father and Jesus the Son are involved in salvation? Okay, now there's two real big problems with that. Uh, One of them is pretty accessible, and that's the fact that as it continues here in verse 14, it's clearly only referring to one person, and that person is Jesus, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The second one is a little bit more technical. Okay. During the abolitionist movement, one of the most significant abolitionists in our country, excuse me, in Britain, was Granville Sharp. Okay. Now, Granville Sharp was not just a, uh, an amazing speaker and an advocate for human rights. He was also a Greek grammar scholar. And he discovered uh, what we now call the Granville Sharp Rule. Okay which we will save the full development of for when we get to the New Testament because it becomes significant in a couple of places. But basically, when you take two nouns and tie them to one adjective and connect them with the, the Greek word and, and it's all in the singular, every single time it's two names for one reference. Every time. 
It occurs about 80 times in the New Testament. Only three of them are controversial. This one, and one in the book of Acts, uh, and then one in one of Paul's letters elsewhere. Okay, and so what I'm suggesting to you is, according to the Granville-Sharp rule, this is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. One description, or two descriptions, one person. Okay, what I'm saying is that Paul and Titus agrees with Isaiah and recognizes Jesus as the mighty God. Going back to Isaiah, the third one is everlasting Father. Okay, now this word for everlasting is also one that is uniquely tied to God. In fact, notice here, if we, if we start with the conclusion that this passage is really about Jesus, Jesus having the title Everlasting Father is striking in and of itself. It's a little bit mind-bending in the Trinitarian sense. If we think about God as being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if we remember that what we mean when we say that God is in three persons, uh, but uh, uh, God is one God but in three persons, Generally, we remind people that the way you think about that is that Jesus is God, the Spirit is God, that the Father is God, but the Father is not Jesus, Jesus is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. Okay, that's the clearest explanation of what the Bible says about the Trinity I know. Every other illustration, I don't care if we're talking about an egg or anything else, always has a yeah, but. Uh, but that one's a good one. However, here it says everlasting father. That seems a confusion of ide uh, uh, ideas. The first thing here is some suggest, and I would say that this makes a lot more sense here, uh, that this is not to be read as everlasting father, but as the father of eternity. In other words, it's not the fact that he's always been and will always be a father that's being stated here, but that he is the origin of eternity itself and the, the origin of the eternal. Okay. Now, second, again, this word for everlasting is one that has divine connotations. All the way at the end of Isaiah, in Isaiah 63, we encounter this word again. Look at chapter 63. In verse 16, for you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from old is your name. And that phrase there, from old, is the same one that's translated everlasting. So what is the name of the father, the God of Israel here? The father everlasting. Okay. What's striking and what's been striking since chapter 7 about Emmanuel is that he is God with us. And we see that reflected again in the titles. Even the last one, Prince of Peace, that's the only pairing here that can be applied generally vocabulary-wise to an average normal human being. But again, in Isaiah, peace is uh, identified with God himself. Uh, so, for example, uh, just turn over to chapter 26. Twice we see the word peace used there. The first one is in verse 3. This one you may know if you're one to memorize uh, biblical promises. It says in chapter 26, verse 3, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So God here is the origin of peace. 
And then notice in verse 12, O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. And so God is the ordainer of peace as well. And so these are striking names for a child who's going to be born. In fact, notice, uh, notice that his destiny is ultimate. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Permanent, full, complete, uninterrupted on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And so it's a complete government. It's one that's built on justice and righteousness, and it's a permanent government. That's what's pictured of this son, of this child who is to come. And then notice it says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's not going to be Israel's faithfulness or unfaithfulness that does this. It's not going to be the uh, desires or the needs of men that does this. It's going to be God's own zealousness, his own drive that will accomplish this. Now, one of the things that's really interesting when you read Isaiah just straight through, and you can do this in most chapters, but if you read the book through, you'll really see it, um, is that it swings towards these long-distance elements of hope, and then these present tense circumstances, sometimes where hope is needed, sometimes where judgment is inevitable. One of the challenges of reading all of the prophets is that they don't come with a timeline uh, in the back that you can trace these things out. The oracles of the prophets are laid out and sometimes move between planes, move between timelines, move all over the place. But it often is arranged in such a way that they are juxtaposed. Do you know what I mean? And so the moves are there, they're present, but what we should do is hold them together as points of comparison, points of contrast, sometimes points of hope, okay? And so notice what comes next in verse 8. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria who say in pride and in arrogance of heart. So the setting here changes, and this is an oracle about, again, the northern tribes. It's been really helpful for me, and hopefully for you, to study the book of Isaiah just after 1 and 2 Kings, because the history of Israel is still somewhat fresh on our minds, and that's very helpful. Notice here it mentions Ephraim, one of the major northern tribes, and then when it mentions Samaria, that is the capital city of the northern tribes of Israel. So that's the focal point of this oracle. And what it says is they are acting out of pride and arrogance. The book of Emmanuel, in fact, going all the way back uh, to Isaiah chapter 4, Isaiah chapter 5, there we go. From 5 to here, there's a big continuity. Thematically, there are two issues at play. One is pride and the fact that God is going to bring down the pride, proud, and the other is trust, okay? And so as this son to come is promised, there's the call to ultimately trust in God who's going to set things right, who's going to accomplish his plan. We'll see that word trust again tonight. Juxtaposed now is the pride of Samaria that doesn't trust in God but trusts in itself of the kings of Israel who aren't looking to God for their salvation, but are flexing their own muscles 
and going their own way. And so they, in their pride and arrogance of heart, say, verse 10, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. So get the picture here. Israel's starting to feel the wrath of God played out militarily. Their cities are being sacked. And they think to themselves, it's fine, we'll build it bigger and better. Right? They're not getting the message. God is trying to get their attention, call them to repentance, but they are so stubborn and steadfast, instead of turning to the Lord, they still trust in their own ability. Okay. One of the things that I've been telling my children since they're very little, when they fight with me, especially when they get physically aggressive, as kids sometimes do, I remind them that I am smarter than them, I am bigger than them, and I am stronger than them, so they might as well give up now. Okay. Uh, with some of my kids it works, with some of them it just stirs up some sort of unseen fire in their bellies, right? Uh, but that's what's going on with Samaria. They don't understand that their opponent is God himself. And so in their pride, they rebuild. Look at what it says in verse 11, but the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemy. You remember how Syria was attacking Israel? That's God's doing, according to Isaiah. That's God's plan to get them atten their attention. Verse 12, the Syrians on the east, the Philistines on the west, devour Israel with open mouth. For this, all his anger is not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Now, it may be that you find that bothersome. That here, the wicked attacks of Israel's enemies, God actually takes the credit for he says, that violence, that death, that blood, that havoc, that warfare, that's my doing. Okay. But it also should be very significantly an encouragement. Because it means that the enemies of Israel are not acting on their own accord, off the leash, if it were, outside of God's control. The Bible doesn't paint a view of God where there are evil forces at work and God's working his hardest to win. God is so sovereign that nothing happens in our lives, nothing enters into our lives, nothing enters into the brains of our politicians or into uh, the plans of our enemies that God isn't aware of and working in and through. Now that doesn't make, as we'll see, God the, uh, God the wickedness we find in the world. It makes him strategic and capable of using tremendous wickedness to accomplish great good. And I would suggest to you that that's one of the greatest meanings of the cross of Jesus. Here is the most wicked and rebellious act that human beings have ever attempted. As God comes in human flesh to love and to lead us back to him, and we respond by unjustly plotting his death and crucifying him on a cross. Yet it is that act of wickedness that God has used for our redemption. Like Joseph says, all the way back in Genesis, what you, my brothers, have meant for evil, God has used for good. And we as Christians must say to that statement, amen, because that is the testimony of our own story. That is what God has done in the gospel. That is what God is doing here. He is using these nations to discipline his stubborn child, but his stubborn child refuses the discipline. And so notice it says, for all this, his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Why? No repentance. And so here, he's speaking over Israel and he's saying, you've already tasted judgment. You already know where this path leads. It's not going to stop 
until you stop. Okay. He continues here in verse 13, the people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. Okay. The idea here of head and tail and even a palm branch of reed is, is leadership. Okay. He's talking about what he did with their leadership. And so it says in verse 15, the elder and honored man is the head. The prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. And so he says here that he's going to take out the leaders because the leaders are misleading. Okay. He says here that those who should be the head uh, are guiding the people, leading them astray, and when they follow, they're swallowed up. Okay. This is very similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 15, 14, when he rebukes the religious leaders of his day as being the blind who are leading the blind. And he says, where do you think this heads? Won't both fall into a pit? Okay. But God says here, that's what he's doing in Israel. He's, uh, he's turning the counsel, um, the wise counsel of his people into foolishness. Verse 17 Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young man and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows, for everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. Okay, and so here it says that God's just judgment against all the people is just because they've all gone astray. Even though the leaders are responsible for leading, the followers are responsible for their following. It's a holistic condemnation of Israel. And then we get that refrain the chorus, if you will, repeat it again. For all this, his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Isaiah looks over Israel and he uses this metaphor of fire in the place of wickedness. And he says, the whole nation is burning. It's all going up in smoke. It's full of evil. Verse 19, through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. They devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together, they are against Judah. For all this, his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Things are getting worse and worse. And so the response to the fire of wickedness is the fire of judgment. In chapter 10, verse 1, we get a shift in gears. Okay. Remember that Isaiah's primary audience is not Israel, not the northern tribes, but Judah. It's been Judah's kings that he's been going for. It's the land of Judah that he leads in, lives in, and it's the land of Judah he prophesies to. But imagine, and you should always do this with the written prophets, imagine standing in the audience, say in Jerusalem, and Isaiah is standing on the street and he's preaching this message. Okay. Basically, he's painting a giant object lesson for his audience. Here's what's going down in Israel. And they get the newspaper. They're living through this history. They're watching these things happen. And remember, this is Judah where there's still a little bit of faithfulness, where God's name is still known, where the temple still exists, where the priests are still operating. And so what are they doing as Isaiah preaches against their neighbors? Side note, their neighbors who have just recently threatened to destroy them, remember? 
along with Assyria, Israel gathers ranks uh, and says, hey, we're going to take you out, Jerusalem. So they're nodding along. They're in agreement. They're even adding their amen to this. But then in chapter 10, verse 1, Isaiah directs the attention on them. Okay? This is something we actually see uh, pretty often in the prophets. Remember, Nathan does this with David. He says, David, I want to tell you a story about a man, a poor man with a single sheep. But Nathan's not really talking about a man and a sheep, is he? He's talking about David. He gets David's full attention. He gets him leaning in on his chair to listen to the story. He gets him emotionally invested. And then he points the finger and he says, David, you're that man. In the same way, uh, in one of the minor prophets, I'm pretty sure it's Micah, okay? You get this section in chapters one and two where it says, for three transgressions and for four, it says Damascus. It lays out the sins of Damascus. And then Syria, and it lays out the sins of Syria. And if you open the map in the back of your Bible and you follow chapters 1 and 2 of Micah around, you'll see that it's circling all of Israel's enemies. And then suddenly at the end of it, he goes for three transgressions and for four, Jerusalem. Okay. In the same way here, Isaiah gets their attention, he evokes their ire, and he says, are you any different? Listen to chapter 10, verse 1. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make their fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment? Okay, that, that pointing, that word you, doesn't exist in what we've read in chapter 10, verse 4. That's them, that's Israel. But here he turns to Judah and he says, right now, the government is writing laws of oppression. Right now, it's following in the footsteps of Israel. Do you think that you'll fare any better? In fact, notice how he continues. He says, what will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners of the fallen slain for his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. He's saying, learn the lesson while you have time. Ezekiel makes the same commentary. He says, Judah, you are the younger sister. And you've watched as your older sister is turned to a life of adultery and prostitution. You've watched as it's wreaked havoc in her bones. And now that you've come of age, you've said, I want to do like she has done. I want to follow in her footsteps. It's insanity. You know, the truth is, as human beings, we're not always good at learning from the lessons of other people's mistakes. Okay. In fact, really interesting, there's been two movies that, that uh, um, first Wall Street and then The Wolf of Wall Street, both of them, according to the directors and the screenwriters, were writing a tale of warning. They were trying to compose a warning about the dangers of this high-end stock trading lifestyle and what it does to life. But both of those movies have sent people into stock trading, into day trading. Both of them have been held up as bastions of the good life. Okay. We see what we want to see. And here he's warning Judah before it's too late. For Israel, their, their end is already near. It's on the cusp and there's no turning it around now. But for Judah, there is still time, and yet they're still walking in the footsteps, even though the only thing that will ease the anger of God is repentance. And then there's the other problem. 
okay? What is God going to do with Israel? He's going to use the Assyrians. Now, if you get a chance to study history, the Assyrians are right up there for the world's worst conquerors, okay? They were brutal, they were cruel, they were over the top in their wrath, their appetite for power and for land was insatiable. They were not good people, okay? And so this causes a tension because, yes, maybe, maybe Israel is bad, but they're not as bad as Assyria. And maybe God is bringing about judgment, but the judgment at the hands of Assyria is horrific. It involves taking babies, young infant children, and crashing them to the ground. It involves tearing open pregnant women. It involves all of these horrific things. And so Isaiah stops here and he says, you need to understand that God may be using Assyria, but that doesn't mean that they get a hall pass. It doesn't mean that they get off free. And so he also promises here a judgment on Assyria. Verse 5, Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him. Now that's a reeling statement. What godless nation? Israel. Assyria is the tool God uses to judge a godless nation. It's a surprising statement to a room full of Jewish people. He says, against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. Okay, that's called a litotes. When it says not a few there, it means a whole lot. Okay, uh, the point is here, God has very specific plans for Assyria, but their ambition overflows the bounds of God's plan. God is help, happy to use them, but they see themselves as the king of the castle, as the great threat on earth. They don't see themselves as merely a tool of judgment in God's hands. They see themselves as the rulers of planet earth, okay? And so he says in verse 8, are not my commanders all kings? Now what is this again? It's pride. Why does God judge Israel, the northern tribes? Because of their pride and their arrogance. And what does he find in the tool he uses in judgment? Pride and arrogance. What does it mean when it says, are not all my commanders kings? It means even my generals are higher up in the ranks than the rest of everybody else's nations. Okay? He's saying here, every one of my leaders could be the leader of thousands, leaders of millions, leaders of nations. Then he says in verse 9, is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? And I know you read that and you go, I don't know, is it or isn't it? Here's the point, okay? The first word in each of those lines is something at this point, Assyria has already conquered. The second one, Carchemish, Arpad, and Damascus, that's their agenda. That's their plans. They're saying one's like another. We conquered these, we will conquer those. Verse 10, as my hand has reached to the kingdoms of idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I've done to Samaria and her images? He says, I've already conquered Israel. Their gods couldn't help them. Do you really think Jerusalem will be different? Okay, set the context with me again. Remember what happens here? God uses Assyria to take Israel out of the land, but they don't stop and they start pushing up into Judah and they come to the very gates of Jerusalem. 
And God warns and promises the king, don't worry, it's not going to stand. And that's the night that he sends this angel of death and 185,000 soldiers are wiped out. So Assyria goes home, okay? That's what we're reading about here. We're reading about what's leading up to that. And so here, in their heart, they're a weapon against Israel. But they're like, well, Judah's the next door neighbor. They're right here. Before we go home, we might as well take them too. And God says, yeah, that's not how it works. That's where the line is drawn. And so verse 12, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech and the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria for the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. By my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of the people and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand is found like a nest, the wealth of the peoples. As one gathers eggs, I have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. Okay, so get the picture here. He says, the nations, it's just like when you come across a nest in the forest, and I'm just reaching in and taking the eggs for myself. Okay, There's no threat here. The reason why we can do that as human beings, it's like, um, it's like an Alice in Wonderland, right? When the bird nest and the bird keeps calling her a serpent, and she's just way too big for the bird to do anything about. That's how he sees himself. He is the only man among just birds that are helpless to stop him from plundering their nests. He says, so I've gathered all the earth and there was none that moved a wing or opened a mouth or chirped. Nobody can stand against me. And then here's the criticism from the mouth of Isaiah. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it or the saw magnify himself against him who wields it? Imagine the scalpel of a brilliant surgeon Somebody who's accomplished the impossible on the operating table time and time again. And one morning, the scalpel, which has somehow become sentient, thinks to itself, you know what? I am amazing. I don't need that doctor. I'm going to start my own practice. Okay? That's the criticism that's going on here. They're just an axe. An axe doesn't feel great because it chopped down a tree because it didn't even have any strength in it. It's just wielded by the strong one. It's swung by the powerful one. He continues here, he says, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. It's not the axe that picks up the lumberjack, it's the other way around. Therefore, verse 16, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. Okay. And this is what God does in the wiping out of the 185,000 under Shennacherib. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. Okay. Now it's using here this picture of a forest to talk about his soldiers. And he's saying all that will be left standed you can count on one hand like a toddler. Okay. That's the imagery there. And then notice verse 20, it says, in that day. Now, we've talked about prophetic telescoping before, okay? Think of a spyglass and how the lenses of a spyglass are extended, and there's one at the front, there's one at the end, and there's one in the middle. But when you collapse it, they're all next to each other, okay? In the same way here, the prophets sometimes jump the timeline, and things look very close, but they're actually far apart. That's clearly what's going on here. In fact, when we read in verse 20, in that day... That's prophetic language that points beyond 
the day that it's talking about, which is confusing because when we read it in English, we go, okay, and the day that you wipe out all the soldiers and that day? It's like, no, that day. I'm talking about that day, the day, okay? In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. So he's looking forward here, and it says here they're not going to lean on him who struck him. Here's what happens. God delivers Judah, but in the midst of it, Judah cries out for Assyria uh, and basically tries to get them on their side. And what happens is Judah then comes under the tax system of the Assyrians. He becomes a, a tenant of Assyrian land, basically, a renter in the land of Judah. And it's terribly costly, okay? So God's looking forward to a time where they won't put themselves in this codependent, abusive relationship, but will trust the one they should have trusted all along. And then notice verse 21, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God, okay? Now, here again, we're jumping timelines. In Jerusalem, there's deliverance. They're not wiped out, but now he looks past when they will be taken out of the land and now will return. He's moving way down the timeline here. A remnant will return, and then notice um, verse 22, for though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. As we've talked about before, this idea of remnant in Isaiah is positive and negative. It's negative in the fact that it's only a remnant. It's just the scraps. Okay? It's positive in the fact that there will assuredly be a remnant. Okay? It says here, only a remnant will return. Destruction is decreed overflowing with righteousness. Verse 23, for the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in midst of the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. Okay, do you see again why even though he jumps the timeline, he does it for a reason? He says one day this is all going to be over and Israel will still be standing, Assyria will not. Therefore, today, don't be afraid of Assyria. Okay. It's like if you just found yourself to be too anxiety-riddled to read a suspense novel, and you decide you wanted to try it, and so you went, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to read the last chapter first. I'm going to know that everything's okay. I'm going to, you know, it's, it's like watching, uh, well, actually, it's a terrible example. I was going to say the Star Wars prequels. Uh, but that doesn't really end good because it's really a story about the bad guy, right? So you just have to watch his evolution. But here, it's like turning to the end of the book and going, oh, okay, this is how it's all going to play out. Then you're not so nervous when the heroine is being threatened with a knife, right? Because you know she still exists 150 pages later. That's what Isaiah is doing here. That's why he looks beyond and he says, look, if God is going to bring about a remnant, and everything is going to be okay, then don't fear Assyria now. And then not only does he look forward, but he also looks backwards. He says, don't fear Assyria because they're just like the Egyptians. Looking all the way back to what God had done in the beginning, uh, Egypt enslaved Israel and God delivered them. God will do the same thing with Assyria. In fact, he'll do the same thing with Babylon, even though we haven't met them yet. Verse 25, for in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb, and his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. 
Okay, and so he says, there's coming a day where I'm going to bring you back where the oppression will be over. Now, what comes next um, is a little bit difficult to understand generally. And it's generally difficult to understand because all the locations is about to mention, once again, you probably don't have a reference point for. In fact, some of them, we don't have a reference point holistically as a 21st century scholastic community. Okay? The second reason it's hard to understand is because it may be that this is talking about that battle of Shennacherib, where they get all the way to the gates of Jerusalem. But it also may be looking way forward to the last battle, the one that we often call Armageddon, when all the armies of the earth are gathered in the valley of Megiddo and then march to Jerusalem until Jesus shows up and shuts everything down. It's hard to tell, and the reason why both suggestions have a little bit of merit is because the route that's laid out here when we do traces the places we, don't, we know don't really make sense for Shennacherib. It doesn't mean it can't be the way he walked, okay? Uh, because there's a lot of reasons that we don't know that people do stuff in history, okay? Maybe his plan involved his approach from a different direction. But if we were to guess how did Assyria attack Jerusalem, this isn't the agenda we would choose, okay? The last reason why it could be either one is because there is this intentional tendency to take the big battles of Israel's history and juxtapose them with the big battle at the end of history. It's common, okay? In fact, the comparison with Egypt is one that shows up in Revelation. When the two prophets show up, they sure do things that look like the plagues of Egypt, don't they? There's all of these things. There's blood, there's frogs, there's fire, there's smoke. All of those things are present. Um, and so it makes it a little bit hard to tell, but let's read it together, verse 28. He has come to Aeth. He has passed through Migron. At Michmash, he stores his baggage. They've crossed over the pass at Geba. They lodge for the night. Ramah trebles, trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galim. Give attention, O Lashia, O poor Anioth. Madmena is in flight. The inhabitants of Gebim flee for safety. This very day he will halt at Nob and shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Okay. So once again, I know you don't know the locations, but what you need to see is the enemy closely approaching and neighborhood by neighborhood, one after another, fleeing as it gets closer and closer to Jerusalem. But notice verse 33, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. He says, he's, he basically says, my axe is so big, I'll fell the whole forest in one swoop. Okay. Now, interestingly enough, when we do get to the battle that we know as Armageddon in the book of Revelation, okay, the armies gather around Jerusalem they're completely surrounded by the nations. And then Jesus shows up. And it gives us a description of the battle, and that's what I want to uh, read for you. And so in chapter 19, verse 11, it says, Then, when Jerusalem surrounded, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True in Righteousness. He judges and makes war. And it goes on, and it describes Jesus. Okay? Uh, and then there's this call that this angel makes to all the carrion birds to get ready for a feast. Okay? And then we get uh, the entire battle uh, in verse 19. 
And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army, and the beast was captured. That's it. That's the whole battle. That's all that's recorded. The lines are set, the start gun goes off, the war is over. Okay. Interestingly enough, the only mention of a weapon wielded by Jesus is in verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword in which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And so even the imagery is similar to what we're reading about in Isaiah. And as we travel through the prophets, we'll continue to encounter this repeated refrain of the nations attacking Jerusalem, okay? Not Assyria, not Babylon, all the nations from all quarters, okay? And that's something that Revelation picks up on as well. Okay. Now, chapter 11, again, we look at this one who is to come, this descendant of David, Emmanuel, the son who is promised, the child who is promised. Chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Remember, we've been talking about this idea of a remnant, just the leftovers, and that's what a stump is, okay? God basically says he's going to lop off the top of Assyria, but in the same way, he's only going to leave a stump of Israel left. And then surprisingly, out of that stump is going to come life, a sprig that grows off uh, what, um, what we call in a healthy tree a sucker, right? Because it just takes the nutrients from the main tree. But in this case, the main tree is a stump. Notice it doesn't say the stump of David. It says the stump of Jesse. Most scholars believe this is because if we talk about David, we think of wealth and power and glory. But when we talk about Jesse, we just talk about a poor farmer, okay? The reference here is going to be when the family of David has fallen into, into quietude, into poverty, into unknown darkness, then this is going to happen. And that's what happens with Jesus. When he's born to Joseph, a descendant of David, and Mary, a descendant of David, he enters into a family that is so poor that according to Luke chapter 2, at his dedication, they can't even afford the lamb that was required and have to give the offering of the poor, two turtle doves. Okay. He grows up in Nazareth. Can anything good come of Nazareth? Right. This is far from the days of David, King David, but from this stump will come a branch and that will be fruitful. And then notice verse 2, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Now, count with me the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. We have six pairs, and then the heading, the spirit of the Lord, okay? And so there's a sevenfold description of the spirit that will be upon the branch here. Interestingly enough, when we get to the book of Revelation and we encounter this personification of the spirit in heaven, it's the seven eyes, the spirit of the seven eyes that roam the earth and exist in the throne. Okay, this number seven is often associated with the spirit. Uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who's a Messianic Jewish scholar, he likes to point out that if you were to draw this uh, with two branches being paired, uh, so it would be... Uh, Wisdom and understanding, and then outside of that, a bigger one, counsel and might, and then outside of that, knowledge and fear of the Lord, and then the main stem of the Spirit of the Lord, you basically have a menorah. Okay? A menorah has seven branches, a main stem with one candle, and then three branches off each side, each in a pair. Okay? 
Um, but nonetheless here, the idea is clearly that, that when this one comes, the fullness of God's Spirit will rest upon him. The Spirit comes upon Samson, and he kills a hundred men with the jawbone of a donkey. The Spirit comes upon David, and he composes the Psalms that are also prophecies of the one to come. But this one, the Spirit will rest on fully and completely. This is why it's significant when Jesus is baptized under John. And what is John told to look for? How will he know when the one he's been promising has arrived? You will see the Spirit descending in the form of a dove, and he will come to rest upon. And that's how you will know. And that's what happens as a voice speaks from heaven. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, and the Spirit rests like a dove upon Jesus. And the word there, in Matthew anyways, means comes to rest on finally, okay, permanently, totally. And so here we're told that's what's going to happen with the righteous branch, the line of David. He's going to be more, fully more than David was. Verse 3, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eye sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. You see the contrast there? It's an interesting one, isn't it? It says here he will judge with equity and justice. Why? Because he won't judge merely by what he hears and sees. There's an implication here by Isaiah that injustice happens when we just pay attention to what we see and hear, when we leave it just to the natural, observable, eyewitness evidence of reality. Okay? That's uh, honestly a little bit nerve-wracking, but if we were to just sit on the last hundred years of court cases, we would see how these things play out, that an eyewitness is sometimes just a grease palm, Right? Uh, that evidence that's presented doesn't actually mean what we think it means, and we read it that way because of our own biases against the poor or the weak or the oppressed or these types of things, right? How many court cases, how many judges can say, I looked at the evidence and I judged justly because of them, and now we go, but did you though? Wasn't it also you looked at the evidence through your skewed lens of how people like these must be, and you filled in the blanks with these things? But Jesus is different. Jesus, as it says in John chapter 2, doesn't need anyone to testify what is in man because he knows what's in every heart. He'll, he'll, he'll judge with justice because he sees not just the evidence, not just the outside, but also the inside of each person. And it says he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Another touch point with what we read in Revelation 19. With the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And then notice this last description, okay? Righteousness, uh, justice, end of war, that all makes sense to us. That resonates with us, okay? The reason why I always remember that phrase, study war no more, is because Moby, the electronic musician, uh, has a song that the chorus is a preacher reading that passage out of Isaiah. Why does Moby dig that? Because everybody digs that. That's why if you're, you know, a beauty queen, what do you want for the world? You want world peace, okay? But notice how much further it goes here, verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. 
The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's dead. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Now, the first thing here we see is it's not just an end of human hostility, but the hierarchy of the food chain dissolves. Okay. Now, it may be here that this is just metaphorically painting an Edenic Eden, an Edenic picture of peace. But it also could be a literal return to the garden. Okay. When we look at the carnage that's involved uh, in the food chain and we go back to the Garden of Eden, it's missing. In fact, human beings, if you read Genesis just straight and outright, don't seem to be meat eaters until the necessity comes when all the crops are wiped out during the flood. And God gives them per permission to eat and puts the fear of man in animals to give them a fighting chance. Okay. How is it that Noah lives, coexists for 40 days in a wooden box with all of these animals? Okay. Um, I hate pseudoscience, so I want to be careful here, but it is intriguing that some people suggest the reason why we no longer need our appendix uh, is because an appendix is for, a, for effectively a vegetarian-only diet. And because we are now omnivores, we just have this, this excessive thing. Now, we're now starting to find that an appendix actually does quite a few things that are pretty good. But when we find it in other animals, that's the common trait, okay? Um, but either way here, what's painted here is a restoration of not just human relationships, not just relationships between God and humanity, but in universal proportions, okay? A cosmic rectifying of things, a setting right of nature itself. And then the kicker is in verse 9. It says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what God says he's all about back in Numbers. That's God's big plan. That's his total agenda. And here it comes to pass. It's not just that the animal kingdom will be balanced out and there will be no carnage. It's that the earth will be the glorifying, the God-glorifying world it's supposed to be. It'll be as if God's or, you know, ramifying praise that shakes the mountains and the skies will be everywhere, just as it was in intended, okay? This is the big plan. It's not one of God's uh, smaller plans. This is the ultimate one. Verse 10, In that day, the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. We've already read the, about this before. You remember last week or the week before when God said, there's going to come a time where everyone will come to Zion to know of God. And they'll nudge each other and say, hey, let's go to Jerusalem and learn. And then he criticized Jerusalem for learning of the nations around them, even though their destiny was to be the hub of all God's knowledge. And here we see that that's bound up in this uh, Emmanuel, in this one to come. Verse 11, In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the rem remnant that remains of his people. A second time? What's the first time? The first time in Isaiah's day is still to come. Israel's about to, the northern tribes is about to be taken by Assyria. 150 years later, Jerusalem and Judea are taken by Babylon. They're going to be brought back a first time, but here he's looking way beyond that to a second time. Okay. 
a time that we've started to see happen in the 1940s as people are regathering in Israel, a time that's still to come. And then notice what it says here. He'll recover the remnant, remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathos, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, from the coastlands of the sea. Now, those are all areas right around Israel. But if you look at them, what you'll find is, um, let's see, uh, Egypt and Cush. Uh, Cush we call Ethiopia, so that's south of Israel. Um, Elam and Shinar, that's to the east. Hamath is to the north. And the coastlands of the sea, that's the Mediterranean Sea, that's to the west, okay? And so this is probably filling in from not saying the Jews are only going to be scattered to these nations around them, because side note, Babylon and Assyria are both further than this, okay? But in, from all directions, it's basically saying here, from all points of the compass, they're going to be regathered here. Verse 12, he will raise a signal for the nations. He will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. So what he says also is that Israel will be restored as one nation again. Remember under Solomon's son Jeroboam and King Rehoboam, there's this split and from that point, we have the ten northern tribes under one king, and we have the two and a half tribes under the other king. But he says, in those days, there will be one people, Israel. Verse 14, but they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west. Together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath. Okay. Whenever we get a reference in the Bible to the river, that's the Euphrates, okay? And so here, the Euphrates he's going to scorch and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. Okay, basically what God, uh, what Isaiah is saying God is going to do here is he's going to reduce even the geographic barriers that would make it hard to get into Israel, okay? It's not as significant when most of us, if we were going to travel to Israel, wouldn't do so on foot. We'd fly. But Euphrates, once again, is a significant and long-standing historical river. In the Bible, it goes all the way back to the beginning. Like pre-flood, there was a Euphrates, and they saw this river after the flood and went, that must be the Euphrates because it's the big one. Okay? It's been a staple in history, and here he says he's going to dry it up so that you can, uh, you know those little canals at the beach on the Oregon coast that you can just walk through? That's what it says it's going to be like. And then notice verse 16, there will be a highway from Assyria from the remnants of his people as there was for Israel when he came up from the land of Egypt. Now again, here we can see the metaphorical, right? Did God pave a road from Egypt to the promised land? No, but he made a way. He, he led them through the wilderness. He provided for them. He got every enemy and obstacle out of their way. It says in the same way God's going to bring the people back in that day. And then what we, what we have in chapter 12 to close the book of Emmanuel in the first section in uh, in, Israel, in Isaiah is a psalm, okay? If this is true, then worship. And remember, remember that the things that Isaiah has laid out here are still to come for his audience, okay? But he, they can worship now. A good deal of the worship we find uh, in the Bible is future-oriented. Consider the songs in Revelation. We don't have to wait until the events of Revelation play out, till we can sing those songs, we can sing them now, okay? 
it's similar for Isaiah's audience here. And so if this is who God is, verse 1 of chapter 12, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Now Isaiah is quoting there. Do you know where the quotation is from? That's from the song of Miriam in Exodus chapter 15. Okay? These are the words of the victory when the Egyptians are destroyed at the Red Sea. And so he's making a touch point back here. And side note, Israel gets the message. Because we also find this refrain repeated in Psalm 118, verse 14. Okay? You probably know Psalm 118 because it's the one that comes up in the New Testament. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Right? What's interesting about this occurrence in Psalm 118 is many scholars believe the composition of Psalm 118 was in the dedication of the replacement temple built in the days of Ezra. Now wouldn't that make sense? Here Israel comes back into the land, they rebuild the temple, and as they write a song to dedicate the temple, they take Isaiah's promise here and they say, we resonate with that. God has proven himself to us. He's brought us back to the land just as he said. He's made a highway from Assyria and from Babylon and brought us back. Okay. Verse 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. I don't know about you, but I love that metaphor, not just because it's so joyful, with joy you will draw waters from the well of salvation, but also because water there and a well, that's a daily sustenance. It's not just, boom, God saves you, story over. It's a constant and available resource. He says basically here, you will, you will find nourishment in the Lord. Consider again the words of the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 2. Jeremiah says, my people have committed, committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have made for themselves pots, broken pots that can hold no water. Basically, Jeremiah says, speaking for God, you have turned from the one source of all life and made for yourself false gods that can't satisfy. But here, in that day, we will understand the satisfaction that's offered in God, and we will drink of it daily. And, verse 4, you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. The first part is personal. I will give thanks to the Lord. Behold, you, God, have become my salvation. But here it says we will also call others to praise. Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Do you see the outward trajectory of that? God has saved me, and so now I want it to be proclaimed. I want it to be sung about. I want his name to be proclaimed throughout all of the world. Okay. I was listening to a, a sermon of John Piper's that uh, Harley sent me recently, and he was, just, he was just distinguishing the difference between worship in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he put it so simply. He said, look, when you look at the Old Testament worship, you see temples, you see garments, you see sacrifices, you see motions, hand motions, it's all described. But when we get to worship in the New Testament, there's zero description. No clothing, no location, no garments, no fabrics, no gold statues, no, no ark, no furniture, no nothing. And he said, that's because in the Old Testament, they have a come and see religion, but in the New Testament, we have a go and tell religion. Do you see how Isaiah is pointing to that go and tell? 
It's a proclamation. It's, it's going out into all the earth and wanting everyone to know that this is the God who delivers, that this is the God who saves. Verse 6, shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Now again, to get to that point, there's a lot of ups and downs. There's judgment and justice, there's difficulty, there's despair. It's along this way that we get to Psalm 137, where Israel, while they're marching to Babylon in the hands of their captors, stop at a river to rest and they say, hey, you've got an instrument there, why, do you, why don't you sing? And they go, how can we sing? How can we possibly worship on a day like today? But the end of the story is guaranteed. And the climax makes all of the difficulties, makes all of it pale. It reminds me of what Paul says. He says, when I, commit, uh, I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared to the inestimable glory that is to come. That's the reality that he paints for Israel here. And again, for the faithful, for the remnant, who are going to live through all these things, who, like Hebrews says about many of the Old Testament people, will long for these days and never taste of it personally, they can still worship. They can still sing this song in truth. They can still drink from the well spring of joy because God is this God, the one who saves. Let's pray. Father, Peter tells us that the prophets long to look into the fulfillment of the things that they prophesied. They pondered and wondered, what would the branch be like? Tell me more about this Emmanuel. What does it mean that the son is born and the child is given? How is it that the servant of the Lord is going to be despised and rejected and crucified and yet will see his offspring and rejoice? And yet, Lord, we know the fullness and the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. We don't have to use the broad and mysterious and thought-provoking names. We can just call him Jesus. We can call him my Savior. Not the Messiah who is to come, but the one who came and died for me. And the one who will come again and set everything right. The one who, at the end of all time, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and yet we get to know him now. And Father, we know that our life has all types of difficulty and danger and confusion and darkness, and sometimes, if we're honest, despair. But we also know the end of the story, and we know that the one we've entrusted all things to is faithful and true. And we know that the one who is promised is faithful and true. And we know that one day we will sing this song, one day we will sing the song of Revelation chapter 5 and the song of Revelation chapter 19 and that all of the songs of the end of time we will sing because everything you've said you would do and everything that you've said that you are, you are and you will do. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people of hope. Hope is not about the things we are, the things we have, the things we see, for if we could see it would not be hope at all. But at the same time, Lord, we know that this is a hope that will not disappoint. Because just like Isaiah encouraged the people, hey, remember Egypt. 
Paul in Romans chapter 5 says, hey, remember that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we know our hope will not disappoint. And we praise you for that tonight. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.